Uh, the scripture reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, was, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Must not many, be many Browns fans here tonight. How quiet it is. I figured you Browns fans would be excited. Congratulations. We're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 tonight. So you can just have your Bibles there. We're not going to really go anywhere else. We're in the fourth part of the series that we've called on our Sunday night theme, Foundation. Um, which is revolving around the idea of building a set of beliefs, the beliefs that we hold, the beliefs that we anchor ourselves into, the ones that we um, hold on to when we make sense of the world that tells us why we're here, our beliefs that tell us what's wrong with the world, our beliefs that tell us how the world gets fixed. All of those things, those set of beliefs that each one of us holds because we live out of our beliefs, um, Jesus told a story about two people who built homes and those homes representing a, a concept of belief and one person built their house on the very first thing they saw, which was on the flat ground. And when the pressures and catastrophes of life came, it knocked the house down. Those beliefs could not withstand. And then there's another person that built their house after they dug deep, found the rock laid the foundation on the rock, and then built that home on top of it. And when that person did that, the catastrophes of life came, but the house didn't fall down. And so we're in part four of this series trying to help ourselves uncover as much of the rock God as possible so that we then can lay the foundation of Jesus Christ and then build our set of beliefs upon that so that when catastrophe of life comes, which it will, we can stand. So we're in the part of our journey about creation. Genesis 1 and 2. Really, why does the story of creation matter? It's an important thing for us really to think about. Uh, I want to mention as we get into talking about creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that tonight in the sermon in the pulpit, I will not be taking any time to deal with the tension that exists between non-believers and believers regarding creation. Or um, maybe I should say it this way, the, the debate between evolution and creation. And I'm not going to spend time tonight um, going through apologetic material for you. Um, there's a lot of good material that exists in the world with regards to apologetics. In fact, on next Sunday, there's a group that's going down to the uh, Creation Museum near Cincinnati. So if you're interested in that, man, sign up for it. You should go do that. Um, I will, however, say this, that uh, first thing in the morning, there's going to be a podcast available on our website. Uh, if you don't do website and get on the web, you can ask our sound guys. They'll make a CD for you. But I'm going to trace um, the history of the Hebrew creation story and then Christian thought, um, starting with the early church fathers and, you know, one and 200 A.D., moving forward until we are present day, uh, the creation tension that has existed and then I'm going to spend some time talking about the modern views of where the world came from, especially in Christianity, things like the six, literal six-day creation concept, all the way down to what people now refer to as theistic evolution, that God was behind that. And there's a lot of theories in between that. And so I'll take a whole, it'll probably take about 45 minutes on the podcast to give you all of that information 
But what I want to do tonight, because man, when we talk about creation, we talk about so much stuff that is not in Genesis 1 and 2. So much. There is so much beauty about the story of creation that is in Genesis 1 and 2 that gets so clouded and so distorted, that gets so forgotten because of the tension that exists about where we came from and the fight that ensues in the secular world about that. And what happens is we miss a lot of the beauty that's really seen in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. The reality is that much of creation is mysterious. A vast majority of it is mysterious. In fact, it's an absolute miracle that it's here. You see, that's the challenge with regards to science, is that science observes laws that are in our nature, that, that, that they can see and observe. Creation is not something you can observe. It was an absolute miracle that took place at a particular time that our God did, that set in motion the things that we now observe and see. And so creation is a miracle. And so much of the conversation about creation revolves around the how God did it and not the what or the why. And so I want to talk about the what in the beginning and God and the why, what was happening in Genesis 1 and 2 and what the importance is of you and I having a creation story that's anchored in the Bible. Why does it really matter where, where, what our creation story is? We're going to get down to that uh, tonight as we talk about this. So the one thing I do want to address tonight before we get into this is the fact that there are two chapters in Genesis dedicated to the creation story. And if you read carefully Genesis chapter 1, and then you read carefully Genesis chapter 2, um, with any sort of combing skepticism, you might step away saying, these sound like two different creation stories. In fact, in Genesis 1, it sounds like Adam and Eve are created at the same time. And then you read Genesis 2, and it's just Adam. And then later, God notices that it's not good that man's alone, and he makes Eve out of the rib of Adam. Or you might notice the order of things looks a little bit different in Genesis 1, because on day 3, God plants the seeds and brings forth vegetation. But then in Genesis 2, Adam is there, and he's made... And then God springs forth the bushes of the field. And uh, you see chapter 2, about verse 5. Um, you can see at the end of chapter 1, God says, this is very good. But then in chapter 2, He says, it's not good that man's alone. So why the two accounts? The reason I bring this up in the pulpit and not just on the podcast is because I want you to hear this. This has become an incredibly popular angle to attack the creation story is that there are two separate accounts that absolutely contradict themselves. And I want to give you at least one possible answer for that. In fact, I should think, uh, I don't know if I have all the answers. I know that I don't, but I want to give you one possible um, answer to this question of why are there two narratives about creation? Uh, some people can see this as a little bit confusing. Why two? Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. Um, and it would be confusing if you, have, if you don't have any other exposure to the Bible. If you have not really read any other part of the Bible, which you find a lot of non-believers haven't necessarily read much of the other parts of the Bible. But you can find that there are actually other places in the Bible where there are two accounts of things that, that are written differently. For example, Exodus chapter 14 and 15. 
Those of you that remember in Exodus chapter 14 is the story, the historical narrative of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Well, then you read chapter 15 of Exodus, and it's the song of Moses singing about the Red Sea crossing. He's offering praise and worship to God, and it's written in a different form, and there's two accounts, and if you took them side by side and read Exodus 14 and then Exodus 15, you might say, hey, wait a minute, these don't line up perfectly. Well, they're two different writings. Another example would be Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, where Deborah um, in chapter 4 um, defeats the Canaanites, okay? And then in chapter 5, there's a song that Deborah sings about that. And in one place in chapter 5, it actually says that, like, I think the, uh, maybe it's in Exodus, where the nostrils of God were blowing the winds. It's the song of praise. And if you're reading that song and saying, listen, okay, what does this exactly mean? Does that mean that God brought two, his nose down and, and he had two nostrils that were literally blowing this? Uh, that doesn't make sense, does it? They're different because they have different purposes. I believe Genesis 1 is a unique writing in the Bible. It has two things going on. Number one, it's written in historical narrative. So the things that are happening in Genesis 1 are literal things that you should read and say, this happened, okay? They're written in what's called prose, which is historical language that's put in chronological order. That means that it's historical. But at the same time, when you read Genesis 1, you ever read and noticed the rhythm of it? And God said... And it was so, and God saw it was good. There's a lyrical um, Hebrew poetry involved. There's praise involved in Genesis chapter 1. And then Genesis chapter 2 teaches us about the flow of life when you understand Genesis chapter 1. How life is lived in connection with understanding that you have a creator. And so we're going to try to put those together tonight and make some sense from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, hopefully creation and you understanding a little bit from Genesis 1 and 2 about creation will bless you tonight. First of all, let's look at the preamble that, that um, Robbie read for us. This gives an incredibly strong indication when you read Genesis 1 and 2 that this is revelation, not just observation. What I mean by that is you, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, you don't walk away from that saying, man, somebody went outside one night when it was really cool and dark and they looked up to the sky and they wrote Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It just doesn't sound like that. Uh, it doesn't say, it looks like this happened. Or, as I observe the stars, this is what it tells me. It's not what it says. It's incredibly, uh, it's about revelation. Like somebody told this writer something. Because listen what he says. In the beginning, definitively, God created the heavens and the earth. There's your welcome to God in the Bible. This is what I love about God. The first four words are a test of your faith in the Bible. In the beginning, God. No explanation. No, here's you know, 13 evidences for this. God just says, listen, in the beginning, me. You in or you out. He's very, very forward about this. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Do you see what I mean, how this is not observation? Like, like Moses, who we think wrote Genesis, wasn't hanging out 
before the world was inhabitable, like, hey, look, there's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. How cool is that? Let me write that down. I just saw that. No, this was revealed to him. Okay? So he says, in the beginning, at the commencement of the earth, not the commencement of God, God singular. You notice this is not multiple gods. This is in the beginning God singular. This is important because every other creation account or story in the cultures and history of our world speak of this world coming into existence because there were multiple gods engaged in a battle and the losing God who usually got his body ripped in half the, the one half became the heavens and the other half became the earth and the blood brought about, that, that's the Babylonian story of how the world came about, is that one God was ripped in half and this, half of his body became the earth and the blood became a uh, seed for human beings to come out of. There are multiple gods fighting and this world was an accident or a secondary thought. Well, what does a single God creating the world tell you? That it was not a secondary accident. That this God singularly spoke this world into existence, so it was intentional. God wanted this world to be here. Does that make sense? God wanted us to be here. So there's a singular God, and He made heavens and the earth. Created the heavens and the earth. This just literally means top to bottom, everything you see, God made it. So I pause at the preamble and just say this. Wow, how can we really get our minds all the way around this. That's huge, isn't it? In the beginning, God created everything you see and even don't see. It's mind-blowing. And I think here's what creation is supposed to do, especially verses 1 and 2. Creation commands of us that we have awe and reverence for a God who could do this. In the beginning, God did this. And then it empowers you to have the faith it takes to really see God for who He is. When you step back, and as uh, uh, Habakkuk says, the Lord is in His holy temple, and all the earth keeps silent before Him. And you step back and observe creation, and you say, in the beginning, God made this whole thing top to bottom. That gives you the faith to really trust Him. I'll point your attention to Job chapter 38 through about 41 where Job was going through an immense amount of suffering. He had a lot of questions about his suffering. He didn't understand it and he wanted answers. He wanted God to come explain to him why he was suffering the way that he was suffering. And in chapter 38, God says, I want you to gird yourself like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you to answer me. And for about the next four chapters, Job just shuts his mouth and God says, where were you when I hung the heavens? And where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I did this? And where are you as I uphold this whole thing? And what happened to Job when God questioned him about creation? He never got his answer about why he was suffering, but here's what he said. My ear had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Job 42, verse 5. You see, being in awe of God as you observe creation gives you the faith it takes to see God, to see Him for who He really is. Creation creates, when we believe in this, when we see it and believe that we are created by something more than an accident, it creates in us a faith that gives us a flow of life. 
where you know that you are the created being and not the creator because you didn't make any of this and you don't sustain any of it. When you wake up tomorrow, if the Lord allows tomorrow to come, you will have nothing to do with the sun coming up. Not a thing. And as you work all day and you fix all the problems and you answer all the emails and you solve all the issues, and as the sun goes down and closes the day, you have nothing to do with that sun going down. Not a thing. What's the point of the Sabbath? Why did God rest on the seventh day? So that you and I would rest to realize that the world does not spin because we're spinning it. We don't make the world and we don't sustain the world. And when you exist as a created being and not a creator thinking you uphold the world and you can't stop because the whole world depends on you, you don't know what rest is. And so creation demands humility of being a created being dependent upon something bigger than yourself. That's the point of creation. And when you and I finally get to that point in our life where we stop thinking that we're radical individuals that uphold our entire world, that we're not sure if there's really a God out there because everything depends on me. And we live by the faith that there's a creator. What we get is the flow of chapter two. Life as a created being. Let me, let me just lay these out for you. I've got to move quickly to get to chapter one. But I want to just show you what cha- the flow of chapter 2. And, and like I've always said through this, you can have all of my research notes, you can have my sermon notes, go back and read them, you can certainly have them. But l- let me show you what the flow of life, of, of life with faith that you're a created being looks like. This is Adam. Verses 8 and 9 show us that faith is involved in creation, the flow of creation. You see, God makes Adam... And then God brings Adam to the garden and God shows him. What does God show him when he's there? There's not a thing in the world. There's dry ground and there's just dirt. That's all there is. And Adam's standing there like, looks good, right? What am I going to eat? And in front of Adam's eyes, God brings up the plants of the field. What was God doing with Adam? Teaching him to trust. Teaching him that he's dependent that he brings it in front of him and says, I'll take care of you. So faith is instilled. You see beauty in God. and uh, where God, It says that God placed the trees in creation in a way that it looked beautiful. God loved beauty. In verses 10 through 14, we see that there was a river. So we have boundaries in family that we know who our family is. We have boundaries in our church. We know who our church is. The concept of boundaries are incredibly incredibly good for us. They're a blessing for us. And God was creating boundary there in the garden. In verse 15, God gave Adam work to do. For those of you that hate your job, work is a part of creation, not a part of the fall. The frustration in work is part of the fall, the part of sin. But God created work in the very beginning of the world. In verse 16, you see that there's incredible liberty in the flow of God, that there's freedom there. God says, you may eat of all of these trees. He has liberty. In verse 17, we see that God requires obedience. He says, of this tree, you shall not eat. There's obedience in creation. You see, the concept of obeying God's law was not because sin, it was there before sin. Obedience. There's joy in obedience. And in fact, awareness of consequences is involved in this. Uh, verses 18 through 20, 
God notices that it's not good that Adam is alone. You see that? So Adam is there by himself. So what does God do when he notices, when Adam notices that it's not good that he's alone? He has Adam name all the animals. Now, why would God do that? God says, it's not good that Adam is alone. I don't want him to be alone. This is not good. Why immediately would he say, Adam, I want you to name all of the animals? That doesn't make sense, does it? Some random job? Well, what would happen in the naming of the animals? As God would bring animals to him, he would say, buck and doe, bull, calf, or cow, gander, goose, whatever else there is, right? But what would Adam notice as he was naming the animals? Male and female, right? You see, here's what was involved in creation. Here's what's involved when you live as a created being with the faith it takes to trust a creator. He creates awareness of need. He creates awareness of need. What was being enlightened to Adam, his mind was being turned on to, was going, okay, gander, goose, buck, doe, wait, male. There's no female. And he says that there was none suitable for Adam. And there was a need there. So God created a need and, and made awareness of Adam that he says, you have a need. And then God answered the need. So what God was doing was teaching Adam, you can depend on me. You can count on me. I'll be there for you. As you see in verses 21 and 22, there was sovereign provision provided. And then in verse 23, here's the ultimate result of that. Why would God make Adam aware of his needs? Why would God leave Adam there saying, but what about me, God? I'm left without. Everybody else has somebody, but I don't have somebody. Why would he do that? Well, when he makes somebody, what does Adam do in verse 23? He worships. Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall become, be called woman because she was taken out of me. Adam worshiped in gratitude. He was thankful for what he had. You see, God created worship and gratitude in the heart of Adam because he allowed there to be a need and then he fulfilled that need. That's a beautiful thing that God does for us. And in verse 25, at the end there, you see, what we have when we live with God in this way is what the Bible describes as righteousness. You see, that Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. They didn't have a single thing to hide in front of God and in front of each other. And what we're going to learn next week in the fall is that the moment that they sinned, the first thing they lost was their righteousness. I can't stand in front of God and I can't stand in front of my spouse anymore and be completely exposed because I've lost my righteousness. And what they have there in creation is righteousness. The ability to stand in front of God and be acceptable and to be pleasing to Him. Boy, what a beautiful thing. So what does it take to have this flow of life with God? I'd say a lot of things, massive amount of things, but I want to give you two observations from chapter 1 and then hopefully whet your appetite to go dig into chapter 1 and meditate on it. The first one is this. You notice a pattern in chapter 1, the way that God created the world. The first one is that he did it by voice, by command. Um, and, and his commands were very unique the way that he did it. He didn't say, hey, light, you better show up or get out here, light, or get out here, earth. In fact, he did it in a very kind of passive and inviting way. It's called the justitive tense. It means to invite participation, but it's going to happen. 
So, so you're inviting things to participate, but it's going to get done. That's what he was doing in creation. So he would say, let there be light or let there be the heavens. And so there are four different versions of God's invitation to creation. He says, let there be a few times. But then he says, let the water bring forth the fish and the birds. And then he says, let the earth bring forth the vegetation, the fruit, and the creeping things and the beasts of the field. But then he gets to this last one when he makes man. And he doesn't say, let there be man, as if it came from nowhere. He doesn't say, let the water bring forth man, as though he were an amphibian, that it came from water. He doesn't say even this, let the earth bring forth man, as if he were just from the earth. What does he say? Let us make man. The only time God says, let us make man. Why does that matter? It matters because it tells you exactly where you are from. You see, when an animal dies, it goes back to the earth. That's where it'll return. Let the earth bring forth these beasts of the field. That's where they return to. But when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, he was telling you, number one, where you're from. And when you know where you're really from, where you originated from, where you came from. This is why creation really matters because it anchors you in where you are actually from. When he said, let us, you are from God, it tells you where you're ultimately going. When you know where you're from, you know where you're going. John chapter 8, Jesus said this. People were just so shaken up about his um, composure and his confidence. They were just flabbergasted by this. They even said one time, no guy has ever spoken like this guy. He's just so calm and cool and collected, right? He knows what he's talking about. In fact, the teachers were like, listen, this guy speaks with authority. He knows what he's saying. Well, why? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 14, I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going. Not a doubt in his mind. You see, really? What makes us get enticed by the trivial things of this world is that we slowly but surely forget where we're from. We think that we're just of the earth. We're just from here. We're just like another creature. And so when you're anchored into where you're from, you don't forget where you're going. Jesus never forgot it because he came from there. He was there. He saw it. He experienced. He lived in it. And so he said, I know where I'm from. And there's not a thing in this world that can entice me or shake me because I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going back. That's why creation matters. Number two, where you're from, where you're going. Number two, there's another refrain. It's sort of like this is what makes you think Genesis 1 is kind of like a song because there's a refrain. Seven times in Genesis 1, God says that it was good. Now, why was God saying it's good? Why do you think he was saying it? Was he you know, giving him a divine pat on the back? Was he like, Holy Spirit, you nailed that one. You really got those fish well. You know, what, what do you think he was doing when he said it was good? I think what God was doing when he said it is good is he was pushing back from the table and he was enjoying it for a moment. He was enjoying creation. Like when you take a bite of something so delicious, you say, mm, that is good. You're enjoying it. Everything created by God was a delight to him. He delighted in creation. In creation, God enjoyed Adam and Eve. 
He enjoyed their company, their fellowship. In fact, we see in chapter 3 that their usual daily walk together, which incidentally becomes the description of those people who, which Matt is tracing on Sunday mornings who walked by faith, it says that they walked with God. Their daily Adam and Eve walk with God together as God came down in the cool of the garden. He said, Adam, where are you? They were going to spend time together and Adam was hiding. God and Adam and Eve were spending time together. They delighted in each other. Their fellowship, Adam and Eve had righteousness. They could be with God. You see, I think what Genesis 1 is teaching us is that you and I were designed to be delighted in. And the original source of that was God. That is, who we truly long to have delight in us is God. The person that we want to look at us and to see us and to affirm us and to say, you're good and I'm glad you're here and boy, I love having you around and I delight in you. The one that we long so deeply to say that to us is God. And because we've experienced separation from God because of our sin, Boy, we've collected a massive amount of things to tell us we're good. That's not God. I can just share with you what I do um, because I don't know all of you and your life stories and how this works out for you, but I see this playing out in a lot of people's lives, and I can tell you it plays out in my life occasionally, more than occasionally. But there are a lot of things that I will use to try to look at me and say, you're good, so that I can have the experience of something looking at me and delighting in me when it was supposed to be God. For example, I have two kids. You guys know them. And there are times that I can want to be the best father in the world for all the best reasons, but there are times that I can want to do my job as a father so my kids will look at me and be like, you're the best dad. And that feels great, but it's so temporary until the next temper tantrum comes and then I feel like a bummer of a dad. I can use my wife for this. I can put all the pressure in the world on her to look at me and say, you're good, you're perfect, you're great, I'm enjoying you. And the moment she doesn't, I'm wounded. I can do this with my job. I can try my very best all week to write a, a, you know, a killer sermon. I'll get up and I can preach that thing or I can come up with a program or, a, or an idea in ministry and do that and it can fall flat or you might say, hmm, didn't really get it. And it can leave me why? Because I want to use my job so that somebody will say, you're good. We can use our possessions, what we have, whether it be our cars or our houses or our things or our bank accounts, so that somebody will look at us and say, wow, that guy's impressive. He's good. We can use our image and our reputation. We can cast an image so that people can look at us and say, wow, you're impressive and you're good. And God save us. We can sometimes even use our religion. The performance of what we do in relation to God so that he looks at us or you look at me and say, man, he's spiritual. He's religious. And when somebody does that and they're impressed with us or they say, wow, you're good. Or they delight in us. It's like a little hit of something delighting in us. And we love it. Why? Because the Bible says you were designed to be delighted in. But let me tell you, these were all of those things that I listed were designed by God to be gifts for you to enjoy, not things for you to use. When we use them as our source of affirmation to tell us that we're good, we make them into gods in which they can never really satisfy us. 
And so what we'll do is we'll bounce from one thing to the next, from parenting to being a spouse to a job to religion. We'll bounce all over the place trying to get those things to tell us that we're good. And then we fail and we just keep using them all along. So what what are we supposed to do? Our sin leaves us in this belief state of shame that we have to hide ourselves from God. We're unable to stand before Him because we've lost our righteousness. Isaiah even said that when we try to create our own self-righteousness, that's like filthy rags to God. He can't even stand that. And so even the work that we would do to try to be righteous in front of God, He just, it doesn't work. So what do we do? We're created to be created by God to be in relationship with Him, and our sin leaves us incapable. It sounds like we need a Savior, somebody to save us. One who could step in and absorb all the punishment that was due us from God because of sin, but at the same time, someone who could give us a record of righteousness that's perfect, so that when God looks down, He says, Boy, when I see you, I delight that you're my child. And when God becomes the source of all of your affirmation, all of your, he looks at me and says, I'm good. All of a sudden, you can use all of those things in your life as blessings to you and not use them to be God. At the cross, Jesus took every ounce of God's punishment from top down for the sin of the world. And at the same time, he handed you the blessing of perfected righteousness. That's what happened at the cross. And so to try to get from God or from anybody else, the satisfaction of affirmation will fail until you come to Jesus and say, I'm completely bankrupt. I need your righteousness. And he gives that to you. You can stand in front of God and have the blessing of him saying, it is very good. You're very good. Until you have that, none of the other pieces of life will flow like chapter two, where you end in chapter two. Remember the last verse? Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Sounds good, doesn't it? Boy, we should work together to really go after that and really have this kind of blessing of having Jesus Christ take not just our sin, but all of our shame, to take it away so that we can stand in front of God and enjoy our Father delighting in us and walking with Him in that relationship. Boy, I'd love for you to have that. If you don't, the offer is yours. You can come as we stand and sing.